Delving into Dance with Andrew Westall. Throwing open the curtain on those who have made dance part of their life. Conversations about why they love it, how they do it, and what got them there in the first place. Program notes and links at delvingintodance.com. Welcome to episode 5 of Delving Into Dance, where I interview Gideon Obazanik, who famously established Chunky Move before he was 30 years old. Gideon has an extensive repertoire of work with companies including the Australian Ballet, Sydney Dance Company, Netherlands Dance Theatre, Queensland Ballet, and Sydney Theatre Company. His work shifts forms and expectations, with a focus on collaborations, new technology, and ideas. In this conversation, we discussed everything from leadership, arts funding, current projects, and what's next on the horizon for Gideon. Gideon moved from a potential career in science into dance, training at the Australian Ballet School at age 19. I started by asking, why dance and not science? It was a very pragmatic choice at the time because I was just young enough to take the opportunity to study a dance course. I was already 19. I was 18 when I was accepted. I turned 19 in my first year. For Australian Ballet School, I was already considered to be kind of on the edge of, you know, for ballet, that was quite late. Um, But the science course at Monash, I could defer. So I figured um, I wasn't sure about this whole dance thing. I mean, I was sure enough that I wanted to try it. But then I thought, well, can give it a good bash. And then if it doesn't work out, or even if indeed if it does work out, I can get a real job and a real degree later. So that was the kind of rationale for choosing Australian Ballet School at the time. It was just you take the offer or you'll never do this, you know, again on that kind of level, while science was sort of an op- still open. And then I never really went to science. You know, this is that path, that door opened and I just kept going, turned around three years later and I... You know, they have interest in science, like, but no more than anybody else. Yeah. There's no <laughs> professional connection to science. Just in the well, it's interest. interesting that both science and dance both have a problem around, you know, competing for funding. Yeah, and that's true. also stating their case <clears throat> as to why they matter. I guess on the Australian mm. government kind of stage, there's always, I think, a critique that particularly CSIRO and stuff like that haven't been. Mm. Um, active enough at telling their story and telling, mm. you know, bringing people into that science stuff. And the same criticism I've heard sort of dance, in particular contemporary dance. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, having met some scientists in my work and having met a lot of dancers and choreographers, you know, they're people who are very busy and earnest in digging deep into what they do. And I don't think that this is generalising, but most of them don't engage in that the larger contextual framework of where that sits in the politics and in the social sphere and how it connects to every day. Um, and it's difficult for them to frame an argument well, a, a compelling argument. I think the argument is absolutely there. That's no, there's no issue about that. Mm-hmm. But there are not many people who are out there being able to talk about it very well. So it kind of comes down to a matter of language. Not matter of... I think it comes down to now, these days, 
I think, a very active, um, very proactive plan of advocacy that is more than just going, oh, we know we're, we're really doing interesting work and we're very dedicated artists and we need to be supported. Mm. Um, I totally agree with that, but um, it just doesn't, unless you can kind of articulate how this practice ultimately benefits society, um, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult environment. Not all dancers obviously go on to become choreographers. No. Um, and some try and make that transition and don't do it so well. What for you, like, why did choreography fit so well, I guess, or why was that a... Well, I think choreography for me came very, very early. Uh, I would suggest that even learning dance, there was already an emerging interest in choreography and construction of things. I was uh, studying science at high school, but also art, and um, I had a great interest in putting things together, doing things. I've always had an interest in building things and making things from when I was a ch- as a child. And I think it started quite early. And even in the first year of Australian Ballet School, I had a very good grand teacher. I don't know if it's grand's taught anymore. I hope not. It's pretty useless. But... Um, she identified a few of us who had started a bit late, didn't have a huge amount of experience in classical training and encouraged us to maybe do some of our own choreography. Now, that course didn't have any time allotted to do that, um, so we would be making things at lunchtime or in the evenings or at home, and then we'd have these, every few months we'd have this little showing, which would be at lunchtime as well. So the course... Bella was not interested in you coming up with anything. <laughs> um, and um, I found very quickly that I had an interest in that. And in some ways, I think that gave me, it helped me give me some confidence too, because I wasn't as experienced in ballet as some of the other students. And um, I felt like I could do something. You know, people go, wow, that was really good. Or that was really interesting. You would turn around and... and um, were genuinely engaged with what I was doing or in dance, you know. <laughs> and um, that, yeah, it began quite early. I think there was, I don't know, this is generalising, but there are almost two kinds of choreographers for me. They're like dancer choreographers who are essentially are dancers who then become choreographers and they are trying to teach other dancers how to move in a particular way that's kind of like the way that they move often great you know often amazing like Ennio Greco and PC or um, and then there were those sort of direct what I call director choreographers who may have a dance background some not have a dance background who work with dancers um, performers and work with what those dancers bring to the table mm. um, and look at maybe larger ideas or broader compositions of, and then how do people bring to that and, and from that make something. And I think I've always been more of a second. I think mm-hmm. for me, right from the start, uh, even as a dancer myself, I was not that interested in teaching my dance or my way of moving. So um, I think those people um, are not as, not as common, I think, as choreographers, but often go on to do kind of interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, you know, very successful ones are like William Forsyth or Pina Bausch or, you know... I wasn't thinking about asking this, but I've read in my research that boys 
generally in younger men starting dance are generally given more opportunities to kind of choreograph smaller works as a way to contribute to the space. Um, and some people have made the argument that that is often why in classical ballet and dance there's more men kind of leading companies or um, choreographing. Mm-hmm. Is, was that the case when you were at dance school? Was it mainly? I didn't sense that when I was at ballet, Australian Ballet School. I think it was kind of a general call-out. I think, however, um, in my class, and I'd say maybe that's generally was the case with Australian Ballet School, the young women were more experienced in ballet than some of the men. So let's say even if the class was half boys, half girls, and I say boys and girls because it literally was in mm. a way uh, at that age, um, or teenagers, probably half the boys in my year had a similar experience, same amount of training as the, as the girls, mm. and about the other half had much less because there were just less boys doing ballet, I guess, and the ballet school was sort of desperate to get them and train them. And so of that group, that minority group that I was part of, more took an interest in the possibility of doing something outside of class, maybe because they <laughs> could raise their self-esteem by saying, hey, I, you know, I can't do that very well, but maybe I can do this. Um, so, yes, there were more boys, in a way, involved in those um, opportunities, but not many more. And I think because of that, not because the girls were discouraged, um, I think that um, traditionally, and certainly in my generation, I don't know if it's changed now, uh, in Australia, girls often start at a fairly early age. And when you find them at um, tertiary level, particularly in very intense courses like WAPA, New Zealand School of Dance, um, Australian Ballet School, um, very often, except for some exceptions like Stephanie Lake, for instance, um, and a few others, started very early. And so their relationship to dance is very much about following and learning what to do. A lot of the boys and some of the girls, like Stephanie and a few others, came very late, and me, me included, and had a lot of other influences in teenagehood. And so I would say that often those people take an interest in choreography, constructions of things and composition, and I think that maybe it's not because they're men, it's maybe because they came in quite late and they came in with a whole lot of other influences, or they were doing a visual arts course, and I just do, or sometimes I talk to men, and I was doing a drama course, dance was a compulsory part of it, even though it was minor, I started doing it, I fell in love with it, I switched over to dance, that's Terry O'Connor in New York, so kind of a classic case. Um, so they bring in, not because they're men, I think they bring in something because they're older into dance, and they start to and they have a sort of slightly different perspective. And maybe it's not the sort of psychological conditioning that here's this great canon and you, you, you follow instructions and you do what you're told from, you know, when you're four or five years old. And that may be a reason why, you know, apart from the fact that probably men or boys generally, not even to do with dance, are just encouraged to um, do things and succeed in things and girls are often encouraged to kind of make things for stuff or be nice or be good you know um, so there's probably a, a range of factors um, yeah. that results in probably be proportionally more men taking on choreography from dance than women 
who vastly outnumber men in dance or as certainly in courses, dance mm-hmm. courses. Having said that, you know, I, apart from Graham Murphy that I danced for, you know, most of, a lot of the women that I <clears throat> either did commissions for or dances or dance for, I mean, there were, quite, you know, there was Meryl Tankard and Maynard Gielgud when I was there uh, around. My partner's a choreographer, Lucy um, Anouk took over my company. The uh, Queensland companies were always women until recently, Dance North and Expressions. Um, ADT was kind of a mixture, really, historically, yeah. back and forth. First goes in swings around it up. So. It does, yeah. WA Ballet was mostly men, uh, from my understanding, and, and, and certainly um, Sydney Dance, if Tanya Lidka had not passed away, um, you know, that would have been a very big difference uh, as a legacy from, from Graham. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Australian dance, uh, dance works, uh, women. Um, but, yeah, I think, uh, and certainly from general management and producing, there's a big history of women mm-hmm. involved in that, um, less so in artistic directors, yeah. hence choreographers. So going to your time at Chunky Move, um, you set that up when you were quite young. Yeah. What? 28. Which is extreme for, like, <laughs> I think about my own age and running a yeah. company like that. Yeah. Um, it was, actually. I was 29. Yeah. What, what challenges were there? What, was, um, what did you kind of have to overcome to, I guess, run a company like that with a sense of authority coming from Sydney to Melbourne? Yeah. Well, going just a little bit back from that, um, I'd moved to Europe because I found that most of my work was happening in Europe and I was coming back to Australia regularly because I was living in Sydney and I was like loading trucks and doing a whole lot of odd jobs, some choreography, and then I would have these commissions in Europe and I'd go, and it came to the point where it was just sort of pointless. And I sort of had two jobs, two, two works in, in, in Holland, so we said, let's, let's, let's just go over and give it a go. Um, when I came back, there was virtually no such thing as independent dance and independent choreographers or independent dancers. It just didn't exist. So now we, something that a lot of people might take for granted, it just wasn't there. So basically there were the state companies, which was WA, um, ADT, Sydney Dance, Queensland Ballet, Danceworks here, which wasn't really a state company. Uh, the Oz Ballet were the kind of more resident here than they were in Sydney at the time. Um, and a few other bits and bobs. I think Limbs were from New Zealand and there was another one in um, Canberra, which was also very part-time. If you didn't either dance for them or if you didn't make a work for these companies, you weren't doing anything. Um, and if you weren't a company, you couldn't really... There was actually no even system to apply for any kind of funding. The Australia Council just didn't have any system in place. So I made up the dance company, to be honest, to basically apply for funds to be able to make independent work. So we called it Chunky Move Dance Company, or it really wasn't a dance company. There was no company in place. And there was no company structure in the, in the legal sense. Um, but it was not possible to apply otherwise. So I have to say that I didn't have a great interest in having a dance company or directing a dance company. It really came out of necessity. My interest has always been making work. I'm interested in making work. Frankly, I don't really care that much. I do now these days care more about the structure of how the works are made, but yeah, it was a way to do it. Um, and then within, we did a, we did a couple of projects over a couple of years, 95 and 96. Um, and in 96, at the end of 96, um, 
the Victorian state government opened up for tender this idea of um, a state contemporary dance company in Victoria. And I decided to apply with Anne Harrigan Jones, who was then the director of performance space, which is still on Cleveland Street in Redfern before Caritrix didn't exist in those days. And we basically, to cut a long story short, we were the successful um, applicants. And it was really daunting because I had cause a bit clueless. You know, I didn't realise what was involved. And I was used to being a freelancer. I was really used to arriving at some institution, staying there maybe a number of weeks and then going. I was the only, I was always the one going. And to be quite frank, it really suited me. I, I'd like to be the one who leaves. Um, I don't want to end up being responsible for a whole lot of ongoing things. And um, so that was hard for me. That was really hard. And I remember, I distinctly remember in the first year moving down to Melbourne, thinking and hoping, just hoping that we could last a year so it wouldn't be so embarrassing. Um, you know, there are balls it up. Uh, and, you know, and I was director for over 16 years um, after that. No, I was 14 years or something in Melbourne. Um, but I remember just being quite clueless. I think the thing that annoyed me about my succession was that I really wanted to remind people, particularly the board, that I, as a young and quite successful choreographer and director, was really inexperienced and made heaps of mistakes, but tried to learn from them and felt that it was really important that they should view this as an opportunity to kind of be able to not reinvent it, not do it again, but, you know, cut a bit of slack to someone who shows choreographic talent, but not necessarily kind of an experience. And they were just way too terrified of that, completely forgetting that actually that's how Chunky began and it's completely fine. What were some of the mistakes that you learned from? Maybe not so much mistakes, but what were some things that you had to learn within that? There were, there were a couple of things. One were the sort of programming decisions and, and, and how to make work and how to get along with institutions and agents and so forth. The other thing was internally um, how to work with dancers on an ongoing basis, which never really had to, it was never really something I had to do before. I think we were quite naive that we, did, we, do, we drew up a business plan where we thought over three years we would actually become less dependent on, on funding. So we drew this plan, which was this kind of incredible capitalist plan of, um, uh, of, of showing how over a three-year period we, our fees and our, what we could ask for and the activity, level of activity, what we could do would increase and it would have this almost like commercial return, which was completely just bonkers. Um, so that was silly. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't turning out that way. Um, it really requires these kinds of art forms to be highly subsidised and to continue to be subsidised. Now, they can grow, but they don't really shift that, that, orient, that, that, that ratio very much. Was there a big shift for you mentally, personally, in terms of being a choreographer in the room and taking a step back and being the artistic director. Yeah. Like how, you know, how do you balance those multiple that's, that's the things that I, That's the thing I found the most difficult and the thing that I never felt I figured out. And in fact, when I left, it was still probably the most resounding frustration um, over that period that has 
uh, you know, was the main cause of me having enough. Uh, I'm also very single-minded um, and, I, and, and, and a terrible multitasker. I can't do two things at once or deal with... So what I do is, even today, these days, I segment the day into parts and I write lists. And so I can't deal with... And if something happens in that moment, I'll go, I can't deal with that now. These are the two hours where I'm doing this. So I'll just ignore it. If I deal with it, then this will stop and it'll never be... So I'm very good at deep focus and I can engage with something quite deeply and, um, and, and, and resolve things, but I can't do a number of things. When I make a work, um, I, I kind of unreasonably pushed my producers into these terrible situations where I would say, okay, I'm going to be in the studio for the next six weeks. I really can't deal with very much. Let's do two hours on a Tuesday night, two hours on a Thursday night and three, four hours on a Saturday. And I would not engage with anything. And I would walk to the studio like this. And because I found that actually getting into more interesting work wasn't about switching off as you walk through the door. It took a number of days to get into a particular headspace. And then if that headspace is fairly fragile, that it can be disrupted and distracted quite easily. Mm. And that was really hard. On the other hand, when I wasn't choreographing and I thought I could just be kind of a, a director and work with management for the next month and that in itself would be a really amazing project and we could achieve a whole lot of things. But I could not deal with creative demands in the studio while that was happening. So it was very... Um, it was very it was a very binary relationship for me that I found very difficult to resolve and I think with different colleagues it, it, it was good and bad you know some people really got it and worked with me really well I think dancers really appreciated it and designers and creatives I think producers find it, found it the hardest thing to do so what makes an effective kind of artistic director no, I'm sure you've worked with some that are really good at it and some that... Yeah. I think, um, you know, which is all these cliches, but it's kind of true in some ways. Like, it's very important to maintain the bigger picture, the idea of where the organisation is going and what it is ultimately that you can see that it could do well and how it could do it and and work to consistently go back to a, a strategic plan that you have discussed outside of those putting out the spot fires and constant troubleshooting of the day-to-day and the week-to-week kind of stuff. If you, There is more than enough to consume you in any job and anything with all of that stuff. And it's really important for a director to... Go into that for periods of time, but also be able to step out of that. I think that for me, I'm a pretty good delegator. Um, and some would think, and I sometimes think maybe it's because I'm lazy, and others sometimes think it's maybe because um, I really want, am interested in working with people who are much better than me and doing things that I'm not very good at. Mm. Like, I'm really. I'm not a protective person about control in that sense. So, 
And sometimes, you know, I think that the, the downside of delegating is that when people do stuff for you or with you, they'll really do it exactly how you wanted it to be done. You know, it'll always be slightly disappointing because you have just done it a little bit differently. I learned very early on to let go of that and to think that it may have been a bit better or a bit different or more to my liking, but I couldn't have done all the other things that I did had I done it. So I would much prefer to take the hit, you know, of a tiny bit, you know, a little chink of, you know, maybe frustration, disappointment. It wasn't done exactly how I would do it, but it was done well enough, in fact, more in some cases, way more better than I could ever do it because <laughs> I'd, I'd just be better at it than me. So I, I, I went through a shift in regards to, certainly in regards to marketing, certainly in regards to production management and technical design. Um, never was very good with budgets, so that was kind of, that was great. Um, so that, that was, a, I think that's a really important thing for, and also always take the blame, like for me, for any, any, any stuff ups, never turn around and, and say, oh no, it was so-and-so who works for me or whatever. If you take the job, you're ultimately in charge of hiring those people and working with these people. If some stuff's up, that's, that's ultimately your responsibility because you've, you've chosen them to put them in that role. You've charged them with that responsibility. So always take the blame for everything. Hmm. Um, and never, never put it on someone. Um, yeah, never, never deflect it, I think. And I think if you, get, if you do that, then you feel responsible do you know what I mean? You don't. It's it's childish to to I'm too detailed here. I think um, my best works for Chunky were the more collaborative ones. When I when I look back at a kind of a series of works, how do you make a collaboration work well? Like how? Because looking at some of your collaborations, the people you're working with mm. are coming from all sorts of different disciplines with different skill sets, yeah. different. Views, different continents, different, you know, yeah. everything. I mean, yeah. how do you bring that together? I think we've got to share some, you know, share some common interests. Um, I always felt that dance is a is a really important pillar of expression, but it's not necessarily the only one. And, and a lot of my collaborations haven't been like music or design, haven't been like accompaniments to dance performance. So, like in more Legend, there is probably... 15%, 20% of that show where there's no one, there's no dancers on stage. I'm currently working with this Indonesian band where that'll kind of be the same, if not more, and they're centred in the middle of the stage. Um, it doesn't mean that it's about them and we're backup dancers, but it does sort of mean that um, Alfreda and I with Glow and Sarah Black working together with and, uh, and Christy Ayer on, on this 25-minute solo is that, yes, there is this single dancer, but and she is the central point, but it really is a duet between her and this technology that creates this other thing that comes, uh, works with us. I guess my biggest interest has always been the audience. It's been the, it's been the experience of seeing and hearing and being there. And, um, and so I'm thinking about how is the audience experiencing this? And it can weave through this can be an important dance part or phys- physical body part. 
and then it can go into lighting and then it can go into sound and then it can go back into the body again um, and so and I've done a lot of a lot a fair bit of actually set design outside of me as a choreographer for other people um, mm. and that's always been involved with working with lighting designers to achieve them so I always had an interest and maybe that came from a visual arts interest something I studied in high school my mother was a painter my father was a sort of Sunday sculptor my brother is an art photographer um, my family has no background in performing arts whatsoever but certainly in visual arts so um, it's an area that I've naturally I'm very comfortable in mm. and I think dance in a way unlike theatre that I've sort of dabbled in and even film it it bonds with visual art in a much easier way because it has this capacity for abstraction that's immediate, immediate. Mm. I mean it is kind of abstract so um you can frame it with a character or you can reference it to a situation, but it in itself has no... <clears throat> it's not storytelling. Yeah. So, um, and so most of the people, apart from Michael Cantor or Tom Wright, um, that I've worked with are, are more from that end of the spectrum. And then in the theatre stuff, that's sort of harder um, because once those dramaturgical structures come into place... They really do have to be serviced. And I've seen so much terrible dance theatre, including some of my own, where it's sort of dabbled with but not concluded. And so theatre is a series of consequences. You know, there are always consequences to your actions and character development happens by a series of events that happen and shape that person you go on with them. And dance theatre has this terrible habit of kind of saying, now I'm this, and you do this whole thing, and then you kind of stop being that and you go on and do something else. And so... There is a series of emotional propositions, I guess, but they don't actually, they're not theatre. They don't actually become theatre. They, they are kind of demonstrations of moods and tones. Um, we can talk about it like that. You've just articulated something that I've never been able to kind of put my finger on, and that is, you know, why some dance is kind of really crossing over into that theatre realm mm. just doesn't feel as satisfying no. because there's never that conclusion or not even a conclusion but it just it's kind of like a moment that doesn't join to the next moment and it's, yeah. it's nice on its own but yeah. it just doesn't kind of gel as a um, as a full piece or a full idea no, it doesn't. And, and there's this sort of um, unstudied, unconsidered um, attitudes towards it, particularly from festivals. I've noticed now that I work with Melbourne Festival, they kind of go, well, you know, we have these subscription-based theatre companies and we have Malthouse and we have these other independent theatre companies and they do all that stuff. So let's do the stuff that they don't do. Hey, what about dance theatre? These guys that come in and get really physical and so like, And I okay, that's fine, that's great, but can it at least be something satisfying, like something that actually really makes sense in some way? Even if it, even if it makes sense as a new paradigm, it, it, you know, as soon as you start something, it creates a series of rules or, you know, you can't just keep on, that's just bad, that's just not being illiterate and, uh, and trying to write something, you know, it's just, 
I'm sorry, it's boring, but actually, there's yeah. some rules, and I don't like rules. Don't get you know, but but I I admit that they're there, and they're there because of a purpose. That it's how we think, or it's how we relate to stuff. It's how we tell stories. Yeah. It's how you set up a story. You know. Talking about rules, so coming out of Chunky Move, no, 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 it's fantastic. It's always direct me back. Um, to stuff. But coming out of Chunky Move, where you were not the one leaving, and then all of a sudden you're leaving a company mm. that you've established and mm. set up and given it a platform and a voice and a following, what was that like as a process to leave? Well, the, the, leaving, the leaving process was very long, and that's something that's sort of not seen on the outside by many people so you know but when you leave it seems like you're just leaving you know but I actually had a long process of leaving I I I had these I wouldn't say dramatic episodes but they were emotional situations where I felt frustrated with wanting to be a a creative person and running a company that, that, that sort of duality never reconciled very well. And so in 2008, I took a sabbatical leave of, I think six or eight months. It was quite a significant leave. And that, in that time, it sort of started to become clear to me, not so much at the time when I came back and I went back into the office and it was this kind of staff meeting, general meeting, all these sort of meetings going on and stuff. And I realised that that's the thing I was kind of over. Like I'd done, I'd done my thing. And also that you need a lot of energy to make that work really well. You need to believe in it and you need to invest a huge amount in it. So when I came back, I was sort of a bit over that. And I realised that that's it, my days were numbered. Because I didn't want... I also looked at choreographers, you know, who are getting older and just holding on to the assets of their company and holding on and... I feel it had become incredibly bankrupt mm. over time. And I just didn't want to be one of those people. And um, I thought if I don't leave in the next year or two, then I, you know, I can't do something again. Mm. I, I feel like I'm just young enough to kind of enter. I don't know what, but I'm young enough to kind of enter something. So I told the board and it was a, it was a long process. And, um, the good thing was, was that when it was clear to me, I came back from that sabbatical with three ideas for works and they were not bad pieces, actually. They were really good because I knew there was an end point and I knew I had that. And, um, so I made a solo called Faker. I made um, Assembly, which was this thing with a choir, which I was very happy about. A choral piece. A choral piece. And uh, I made another piece with this, a colleague of mine, uh, Ruben Margolin, called Connected with this kinetic sculpture, uh, sculptor from Berkeley, um, which wasn't as good as the other two, but it had some good things in it. Um, so once I made that decision, it was actually very, there was a, it was a really creative period um, because it was a deadline. So it was good. You've produced a lot of work overseas to lots of different audiences and um, on different companies and stuff. Do you feel that there's still a bit of a cultural cringe in Australia? Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's not as much as it used to be. And I think that it's slowly gaining its own identity. But um, I really see it through the festivals now, how they will very lazily look over to France for their outdoor work, 
and fire pyrotechnics and then look at like the Flemish Belgian kind of area for the kind of dance theatre type stuff or Germany. But maybe, you know, in some ways there's just so much more mm. going on there. I mean, so much more rubbish too, but just the sheer volume of it means that there's actually a lot of good stuff too. Yeah. We're a very small uh, group of makers in Australia. Um, but what's, in, what's quite different now to 25 years ago when I was starting is that it's much more globalised now than it was then. So prior to the internet, cheaper airfares and that kind of connectivity that we have now, you know, if you weren't in Brussels in those years, you weren't there and that stuff was going on. You literally didn't see it. You could have seen it in a magazine, but that was it. Or in the East Village in the early 80s, if you weren't there, you weren't there. Uh, now I have colleagues of mine, much younger colleagues of mine, like Nicola Garn or Atlanta Eck or Luke George or Rennie McDougall or Lee Searle and, um, and, many, and many others. And they have colleagues and collaborators, Anthony Hamilton and so forth, uh, in, in Berlin or in New York, and they'll go, okay, you know, I'm, I'm collaborating on this piece and... And then, or in Singapore, and they'll come and show it somewhere in Australia, or never in Australia. Or, uh, that was kind of unheard of mm. um, twenty years ago. I mean, it wasn't unheard of, but it was very rare, very expensive, very very difficult. And I think that's the thing that's really changing now. Mm. That what people, I don't think, are fully appreciating is that particularly independent performing arts is actually globalised now and it wasn't globalised a short time ago mm-hmm. maybe for the elite and maybe for the very wealthy there was a sense of global globalisation but now I think it's almost ubiquitous and, and so I think that the construction of work it's not even worth discussing it about cultural cringe almost anymore or, or they won't even know what it means 10 years from now even the generation after these guys, hmm. it'll be like, where is the work being made the most and where is it least and where are we travelling to to do it? Hmm. And I would love to see that Melbourne becomes an active player in the kind of network of cities and hubs where work is made. Um, I think it is to a degree because I think a lot of artists come from here, hmm. but it doesn't offer the kind of infrastructure for people to come and and work here. Um, and so I don't think we'll be considering that so much. Um, and I think a lot of artists do follow, we like to think of artists as being really idealistic, but often a lot of economic decisions that are made, artists are economically driven and they go for paths of least resistance and the paths that allow them to create what they can create. So mm. they are... They, they, they have to live on very limited resources, so they're looking where the resources are. And those resources is money, but also space, libraries, theatres, context, culture. And they shift and move now according to that. Yeah. So, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the rhetoric of creative cities and, um, and that kind of stuff, if it's, to go, if it's to go beyond rhetoric, it really will affect, um, I think, outcomes in the long term of how 
Australian cities choose to manage their resources and basically not price out artists out of the economy, I think is one of the kind of really important things. It's probably the legacy of Melbourne as being a creative hub. I think it's slightly overrated now, but it certainly was back in the 60s and 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And I remember this quite distinctly when Sydney started to price everyone out Mm. and Melbourne just didn't. You could still really live. I mean, I was living in a warehouse on Swanson Street right up until the mid-late 90s. So you could you could function here, you know, and, and this, these are a lot of discussions that are going on in New York now and Berlin yeah. that, that basically artists didn't make a choice to go out to Brooklyn. I mean, they, they didn't kind of go, hey, let's go to Brooklyn because it's cool. They were just priced out of Manhattan. That was just an economical imperative. People went to Williamsburg because it was cheap as fuck. And, I mean, no one spoke English there. They all spoke Polish. There was this series of warehouses. There was one cafe. There was one bar. And there was one nightclub and a food co-op that a whole bunch of people who had been priced out of the East Village went across and started over there. Now it's kind of like the cool thing and people have been pushed into um, further east. But it's not cultural. It's just economic. Yeah. Well, it's not just economic, but do you know what I mean? Oh, it's totally an economic thing. Yeah. Like to live in Melbourne is incredibly expensive paying rent. It is now. And it's just going up and up and up. So yeah. to make art and then to pay the bills is... Um, in 1996, um, you were interviewed by Michelle um, Potter. <laughs> and um, you're the same age as I am now. And you said, I'd hate to be this old, fat, drunken, middle-aged choreographer with a dying-in-the-ass company pontificating to young choreographers about the days when we were a bloody revolution. I just hope that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> but I don't know how to avert that. I'll probably go on and do something else. Now, this year, your, this year big five zero. You're not fat. I don't know if you're drunken. I am um, drunk sometimes. <laughs> And you're not, in a, you're not in a dying, um, dying the ass company. Yeah. The revolution appears to kind of be continuing. But what's next? Like, what's, what's um, the future? I don't know. I mean, I have certain aspirations and they keep changing. Um, I think that the um, city, capital city multi-art festival idea whether it's doesn't matter which one take your pick Melbourne stuff is worse because it's not a summer festival so it doesn't have certain aspects that I think Sydney can can do um, I think that's over and I think that I would like to have some influence um, no a great influence in um, doing something new I think it's dead. If I was an investor and these were the, you were selling, you know, someone was selling shares in that idea, I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy shares in it. I, I think that the, the globalization and the sort of ubiquity now of international artists traveling in and out of festival time, it's just, it's just, it's just over. I think what we need to do is think about commissioning. I think we need to think about partnerships. I think we need to think about what does it mean to make works that draws communities together on special events, creative events. So I'd love to be involved in that. Um, yeah, I just, I think as I've gotten older, I, uh, 
I am more interested in the systems that allow, you know, things to happen and less so about my own, you know, the works that I want to make. Um, I think as artists, we, we, we own this sort of centre bit, which is the method of production. We think we own it anyway. Um, before that comes resourcing and we're always, we don't control it enough. And then in the end of that comes presentation or exhibition, and we don't control that very much. The only thing we control is, 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 the, is the centre bit. So we look to others to get to resource, and we look to others to be presented or to be exhibited or to, you know. And if we can control more of that, mm. then I think we're a lot better off. But we're not interested in that. You know, we want time and space to, to do this bit. Um, ultimately puts us in a fairly weak position overall. And I'd like to continue to make works. I've had a big break, so I haven't done anything for a few years. I have done bits and bobs um, and significant ones, but just recently in the last eight months, I have had a kind of a new kind of resurgence about getting back into the studio and being effective in practicing what I've been preaching um, and finding some kind of nexus between the kind of so-called professional sphere <clears throat> and how do people become more actively engaged in works. I, I don't mean just watching, but actually find themselves in the work. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you have enjoyed this episode, you can find a list of episode notes and links at delvingintodance.com. You can subscribe on iTunes and you can follow on Twitter at Delving Dance. Previous episodes can be found on the website from the likes of Deborah Jowett, Raphael Bonicella and Stephanie Lake. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care. <laughs>